0: Continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark tonight, we've come to this rather famous, rather famously difficult passage, you will, Mark chapter thirteen that preaches on Jesus teaching on the destruction of the temple and, and the coming of Christ's kingdom. I found it interesting this week as I was, was reading commentators and preparing to to preach that a, a number of the commentators that I read started out this section with a comment that went something like, this passage is notoriously difficult and no commentator can perfectly unravel every, every mystery or puzzle in this passage. I thought it was a appropriate humility that the commentators came to God's Word and, and said we, we should not be dogmatic about our interpretation of every sentence in a, in a chapter. That's certainly debated and certainly difficult. And yet as we come to this passage with a good dose of humility... We also want to say that that there's much that is very clear in what Jesus has said, much that's very relevant to us in what Jesus has said, and we want to be equally confident in in the things that are clear, much as we come with humility to the things that are, are a puzzle. So we're reading tonight Mark 13, and we'll read verses 1 through 13, if you'd read with me. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his, his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the gift and the blessing it is to have the words of God with us. We pray that we would not take for granted your word because it is so easily accessible to us. May we come with reverence and thanks and eagerness to hear you speak in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was reading a professor who was teaching on how to interpret Scripture, how to approach a passage of Scripture and understand the main point of a passage of Scripture. And and this professor's advice was, he said, start by looking for the drama in the passage. Where's the action? Where's the surprise? Where's where's the the startling course of events? Where's the suspense? And the drama of the passage will point us or guide us to the main thing that the passage is, is seeking to tell us. Well, in our passage... There's a lot that's dramatic in what Jesus says. But if we want to know where the drama is, I think the drama happens right in the first two verses. And it's the drama of the conversation that happens in the first two verses that really guides how we're going to understand what Jesus says in the verses to follow. If you can think back to previous weeks, as we've looked at Mark, you may remember that Jesus has been teaching in the temple He's in Jerusalem. This is his final week leading up to his crucifixion. He's teaching in the temple. He had had famously asked the scribes and the Pharisees that question. He said, you've been asking me all sorts of questions. Now let me ask you a question. David says of his son, he calls his son, my Lord. How can David call his son his Lord? And so he had asked that question while teaching in the temple. And then right previous to this was the, the scene where Jesus sees the widow putting her two pennies uh, her two mites in into the, the offering of the treasury of the temple and he comments on the, the nature of her gift. So that's that's the scene. That's Jesus teaching and observing and, and now he and his disciples are leaving the temple. And as Jesus and his disciples walk out of the temple, one of the disciples says something that was perfectly natural, something that, that must have been said all the time by people coming in to Jerusalem or out of Jerusalem or walking around. He said, Look, teacher, what Wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. Now, we don't have a mental picture of the temple of Jerusalem, and so we don't maybe understand how natural this this uh, uh, this statement was, but the buildings were wonderful. They were incredible. And you know how it is when you see something that's absolutely breathtaking, how you're riveted and you just want to comment on it and you want to tell everyone about it. When you see something that, that amazes you, you're immediately telling everyone you meet about what what you what you saw as I was I was reading this I couldn't help but think last May my wife and I flew to Hungary and we flew through Frankfurt Airport and, and Frankfurt Airport uh, large airport was it was uh, the home to a number of the Airbus A380 double decker airplanes now very few airports in the United States are actually rated to receive these. A380 double-decker planes, almost, and there's only a couple airports in the U.S. That, that they can actually land at, but there were just row upon row of these, these airplanes that were massive, just over twice as big as the, the 747s we would typically fly on, and, and I'm watching these things take off, 18 wheels under the wings, and these, these massive things, I'm thinking, how is it possible that that machine can get into the air? And I remember every time one would take off, I'd be like, Kate, look, there goes another one. And I was just amazed at these, these massive machines. And I was commenting on them to everyone. And if you, if you think about that scenario, like that, that's the temple of Jerusalem. The temple of Jerusalem in the first century had taken 50 years of, of Herod's money, time, effort, and labor to complete, or nearly 50 years. And, and it was one of the awe-inspiring buildings of the Roman Empire, one of the wonders architecturally of the Roman Empire. And Josephus was a Jewish writer, and he's given us a description of the temple at this time. And he wrote this, he said, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either the mind or the eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun would no sooner rise up than it radiated, so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays themselves. And to approaching strangers as they approached the city of Jerusalem, the temple appeared from a distance like a great snow-clad mountain, for everything that was not overlaid in gold was of the purest white." And the disciples commented particularly on the stones. We actually know the dimensions of some of the stones and some of the foundation stones were single stones larger than train cars. These massive stones, and you can imagine a person standing next to these foundation stones being dwarfed by it, and so here so here were the disciples, and it would have been very natural as they walked by one of these huge foundation stones larger than a train car, in the brilliance of this gold covered brilliantly white building, just saying, "Man, what a building! Look at this place and Of course, not only would they be astounded, but it 's also an issue of pride as as, as a Jew in Jerusalem, of, of their temple. I think every, everyone, everyone around this disciple must have been nodding their assent. Yeah, look at this place. What a building. Everyone except that of G- Jesus. Jesus responds in what I think is one of the dr- most dramatic moments of the passage. Here are all the disciples, astounded by this building, in awe of these massive foundation stones, beauty and glory. And Jesus says... Jesus says, you see, you see these buildings here? Not one of these stones is going to remain on another. Now, that is a shocking statement. And there's multiple layers of shock. First, there's just the shock of reality. How do you take foundation stones larger than train cars and say, yeah, not one of these is even going to be on top of another? That would seem like an almost physical impossibility. These looked invincible in some ways. How are they going to be destroyed by human means? But then there's also the spiritual shock the temple. The temple is God's place, it's God's house. He had promised that His name would dwell here. Yes, it had been destroyed once when when the Jewish people went all the way into idolatry and rejected their God, but but how would it be destroyed again? So, what does it mean that the temple is going to be destroyed again? All these questions, both physically and spiritually would have been running through the disciples' mind. And I can imagine, I imagine the rest of the walk from the temple out to the Mount of Olives must have been one of sort of hushed silence as the disciples are, are whispering and muttering and wondering and trying to figure out, but, but afraid to ask outright what Jesus, what Jesus means. The question would have to come privately. And, and so as Jesus and his disciples leave the city and arrive at the Mount of Olives, four of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, come up to and ask him. They said, when, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs going to be of the times that you're describing? Now, they specifically say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And we, if we want to ask, what are these things? We have to look back just to verse 2 and say, these things refer to what Jesus was talking about, and that's the destruction of the temple, that there would not be one stone of the temple on top of another, and so certainly the destruction of Jerusalem is, is primary in the disciples' minds here. However, if we were to flip over to Matthew in the parallel account here, we would see that, that in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples ask, when will these things be, and when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So over in Matthew 24, the disciples wrap up the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of Jesus in the end of the age into sort of one one ball it's it's uh, it's Matthew 24 Matthew 24 verse 3 tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age see for the disciples the coming the, the destruction of the temple was such a an apocalyptic or or cataclysmic event that in their minds they assumed the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of the kingdom, the end of the age would all be wrapped up. And one big question, when is all of that going to happen? And so our, our question as we, as we go through Jesus' answer, as he answers, when will these things happen, our, our confusion or our question is the, is the same as the disciples. Is Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem specifically? Is he talking about the coming of his kingdom and the end of the ages? Or is he talking about both? And that's the key question we want to look at as we work through this chapter. Tonight we'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 13, and Dr. Light will will pick up next week. But I want want to just look quickly as an overview. I think Jesus gives us some clues in his answers to help us navigate what he's talking about at each point in the chapter. And if you just scan your eyes over these verses and look how Jesus addresses the disciples— In verses 5 through 13, Jesus is giving the disciples practical pastoral advice about characteristic signs and events that will happen all throughout the period of history between his first coming and his second coming. So Jesus in verses 5 through 13 isn't giving specific signs that the end is here. He's giving signs and events that are going to happen all throughout history between now and between his, his first coming and his second. So he says things like, um, see that no one leads you astray or deceives you, because you're going to hear about wars and rumors and wars, but the end is not yet. Or your nation's rise going to rise up against nation, and there's going to be earthquakes, but these are but the beginning of pains. See, those aren't the signs of the end yet. those are that the sign, Those are signs that the end is not yet. They're, they're just the beginning. And then he goes on, be on your guard, be on your guard. Uh, be, Be prepared to be dragged before governors, for the gospel must be preached. Do not be anxious, and he who endures to the end will be saved. This is pastoral advice. Do not be alarmed. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. He who endures to the end will be saved. Practical pastoral advice for signs that will mark the whole period of history between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. But then in verse 14, Jesus switches and says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, he gets much more specific in verse 14. And Dr. Light will talk more about this next week, but we believe that primarily verses 14 to 23 are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple are the primary thing Jesus is talking about. But then when you get to verse 24, Jesus changes course again and says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And Jesus switches to say, but after the days of the destruction of Jerusalem, then he begins to talk about his second coming and the coming of the end of the age. So Dr. Light's going to parse a lot of those details out uh, next week, but I think that's how we want to think about this chapter. Characteristic signs of the whole age in 5 through 13, specifically focused on the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 14 to 23, and looking at Jesus' second coming and the end of the age in verses 24 and following, so tonight we want to look at these characteristic signs, these things that will happen throughout history in the ages that uh, between Jesus' first and second coming. He, Jesus, mentions really two categories of events in verses five through eight. Jesus talks about geopolitical events, events that will happen around the world politically, uh, and and uh, in the earth, natural disasters. And he he identifies several things. He says the disciples should expect false teachers or false Christ to arrive, claiming to be God's anointed messenger, claiming to be God's appointed prophet, and yet leading people astray. So we should expect false Christ. We should expect wars and rumors of wars and nation rising up against nation. So we should expect conflict and war to be happening throughout this period. And we should expect natural disasters, earthquakes, famines and other related events and certainly if you think back over the course of history even in your own life but the whole the whole course of history we've seen all three of these we've seen false teachers who have led people astray in 135 a.d not long within a generation after the fall of jerusalem there was a a, a jewish man by the name of bar Kochba who claimed to be the messiah and led many jewish people away uh, they followed him uh, leading to rebellion and, and ultimately a key a key event destroying much uh, of, Jewish, I mean, of the Jewish cities and Jewish people. You could think much more recently. Maybe you think of men like Mohammed, or maybe you think of men like Joseph Smith, who claimed to be speaking on God's behalf and lead many people astray and deceive them. Hundreds of others we could talk about have deceived men and led them away spiritually. Wars. Certainly we have seen wars all throughout the age. In fact, I read an account by one historian recently. He claimed this. He said, we have actual historical documents covering 3,425 years of history. And the documents that we have specifically mention war in all but 268 of them. So if we want to hear about war, out of 3,425 years, all but 268 of them specifically talk about war. Earthquakes and famines certainly have been frequent throughout the world from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the lifetimes of some of Jesus' own disciples, 79 AD, up to tsunamis of the last decade or so in Thailand and Japan as a result of earthquakes. These have been characteristic signs of the whole age. So in verses 5 through 8, Jesus describes these geopolitical events. If you look then at 9 through 13, Jesus switches to a more personal level. And he talks to Jesus' disciples about what they should expect personally in the times between his first and second coming. They should expect to be delivered over to councils. They should expect to be beaten, brought to trial, and delivered over for their faith. Families will be split up. Brothers and sons will have sisters and fathers put to death because of Christ. And Christians should expect to be hated by all for the sake of the name of Jesus. I think, once again, if you think about the course of history... From Paul before the Jewish council to Christians under violent Roman emperors to God's people today in Middle East and Africa and North Korea, we have seen Jesus' words to be true. But Jesus Jesus gives this very hopeful statement, this very hopeful statement in the middle of his description of these trials. He says that God's people, in verse 10, God's people will bear witness to his name so that the gospel will be preached to all nations. And that must be true before the end comes. The Holy Spirit is going to give God's people specific words to say. He's going to guide their tongues so that they will give testimony to Him. And their martyrdom and their suffering will turn out to be one of the most powerful witnesses for the gospel, leading to one of the greatest growths of the gospel throughout history. Jesus, I think, foretells exactly what we've seen century after century, and that is... That the blood of the martyrs of Jesus is the seed of the growth of the church. and That is what Jesus is talking about. So there's these two groups of signs, these lists, the geopolitical events that will happen throughout history and, and what will happen personally to God's people. But if we look at Jesus' comments about these signs, I want to notice four things, four things that Jesus says about these signs that I think will get us to the heart of this passage. First, notice in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, You will hear of wars, and you will hear rumors of wars, but do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Jesus is talking specifically about these wars and rumors of wars here, but I think his statement, "These this must take place, but the end is not yet, this statement really extends to his discussion of the false teachers and the earthquakes and famines as well, probably even also to being hated and dragged to trial. Jesus is making this comment because when something devastating happens, it's natural to assume that God's judgment is on you, that God's at work. When you see something horrible or terrible, we we begin to think just cataclysmically. We think, the end of the world, this is so devastating and disastrous— And our minds naturally go towards, man, what is God up to? Maybe the end of the world is here. And so I think Jesus is anticipating when all of these bad things happen, when wars and and natural disasters and deception is happening, he knows people's minds are going to go to, well, this must be the end of the age. God must be the one at work wrapping things up here. And so Jesus says, no, these things must happen, and the end is not yet. And so Jesus is actually cautioning his disciples— when these upheavals happen, don't assume that the end is near because these things must happen. They are part of God's sovereign course of history. And while all this is happening, the end is still very far off. I think this is a very important message for us to hear, probably particularly uh, for American Christians. I can't, I can't count how many times in the last few years I've, I've heard American Christians say to me, boy, I know we must be in the end times now. We must be in the end times. And, and there's a number of reasons for that. Some will point to the wars happening throughout, uh, throughout the world. Others, others will, will look at, at violence in the Middle East or the earthquakes that have happened. But a lot of it comes down to the fact that America seems to be going downhill. And people say, well, look at how bad America is getting. Things are getting worse morally in America. And so you combine wars and America going downhill and, and the end times must be upon us, or they look at at Christians being ostracized or condemned for their faith in an increasingly secular and sexualized culture here. But I want us to hear what Jesus has to say here. The idea that the end times are near because things are getting worse in America is not only a bad interpretation of this passage, it's exactly the opposite of what this passage says. When you hear the wars and the rumors of wars and the natural disasters, and all of these things happening, don't assume that the end is near. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. I think it's particularly discouraging for us to see, to look at American culture and see American culture going downhill, and to think that that must be the sign that the end times are upon us. That's really a very self-centered focus. Focus if you think of the world history, things have been far worse than they have been in America throughout the world for centuries. And and even while things might be getting worse in America, the gospel is flourishing and exploding in the Middle East, in the Muslim world, in South America, in Africa. And so if you were to look at those areas of the world, we would say there's great hope. The gospel is still growing. God's kingdom is expanding like it has in few areas in few times before. Kent Hughes, Kent Hughes, commenting on this passage, said, When you and I and our country are touched by war or disaster, it is so easy to think, surely the end of the world is here. But this is narcissistic and self-centered eschatology, not biblical eschatology. The first thing we need to hear Jesus saying is the warning. These things must take place, but the end is not yet near. The second thing that Jesus says that takes us to the heart of this passage is in verse 8. Jesus says in verse 8 that these signs that he's talking about, these, these wars, these rumors of wars, these natural disasters, deceptions, he says, verse 8, these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. And certainly there's part of this statement that these are the beginning of birth pangs that's making the same point as up above. These are just the beginning of things, not the end of things. But I think the analogy that he uses is very important. These are the beginning of the birth pains. The analogy of this birth process, this labor process, I think is very important for us to understand from this passage. Think about going through natural disasters, persecution. When you're in the midst of persecution and tribulation and war, what's our focus? Our focus is on how painful it is. Our focus is on how difficult it is. Our minds are immediately focused on the difficulty and the pain of going through the process. But think for a minute about the birth process, about labor. When we think about labor or giving birth, when, when contractions start and a mother goes into labor, I'm sure there must be some dread of the process of laboring contractions. Can't speak personally, but I have to think that that would be True. But at the same time, dread of the process and the pain is not the primary emotion. When a woman goes into labor, she doesn't break into dread, she's excited. I can't uh, point to any scientific studies, but on a personal survey, all four times my wife has gone into labor, it's been an exciting thing. It's been excited, joyful, maybe a relief when we're overdue. Because even though we know that there's pain ahead, we know what the end is. We know why the pain is coming. It's coming because a baby is coming. And the end of this process is going to be new life. I think this is exactly how Jesus is encouraging his disciples to think of these signs. These signs are birth pains. They're painful, but they must take place. They're part of the process of history that's moving towards a particular goal and a particular climax. And the goal and the climax that these signs are looking for... It's the return of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and the salvation of his people. Contractions don't tell you when a baby is going to be born, but they do tell you that a baby is going to be born. And I think Jesus is saying when you hear these wars and these rumors of wars and these natural disasters and deceptions, that won't tell you when the end of the age is coming, but it will tell you that the end of the age is coming. It does tell you that God is at work, that the process of God's God's schedule for history is moving forward, and it does tell you that Jesus will come again. I love how Cornelius Venema, one uh, writer on on this passage and on on Jesus' coming, he, he wrote this, he said, the signs of the times, talking about this passage, the signs of the times are all those events revealed in the word of God which confirm that the present course of history is moving forwards toward the day of Jesus' return. To the people of God who walk by faith and not by sight, they are indicators that Christ will come as he's promised. And they are reminders that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. He is ruling all things for the sake of his church. They remind the believer that history is right now moving forward towards an appointed goal, Namely, the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Christ from heaven at the end of the age. And so these signs are telling us that the next event on the horizon of God's grand plan for history is the return of Christ, the arrival of his kingdom, and the fulfillment of the hope of all believers. And so, and so these, these signs, these painful signs... Are actually evidence that God's plan is moving forward. They are birth pains telling us that the kingdom of God is coming and will arrive. Jesus is saying, when you see these things happen, know you are in the labor process. And the coming of Christ and the coming of the kingdom is at the end of this process. That's the second thing that Jesus says. Third thing, Jesus says that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. You look at verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is coming in the context of a very sobering warning that Jesus gives his disciples. Imagine, put yourself on, on the Mount of Olives. You're one of Jesus' disciples. And you're asking Jesus, one, what are going to be the signs of these times that you're talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, you're going to be delivered over to councils. You are going to be beaten. You're going to stand before governors. You're going to be hated for my name's sake. And you're thinking, this is bad. This is difficult. Jesus is looking at them in the face and saying, one of the signs is that you are going to go through difficulty, suffering, for my name's sake. But Jesus here in verse 10 is telling them that it's not just random suffering. It's not just suffering or pain that's going to happen for no apparent reason. Because the clear thought process is that you are going to be delivered over, beaten, and stand before governors on trial in order to bear witness to me. The suffering is going to happen so that you will have opportunity to bear witness to me. So that the gospel will go forth into all the nations. In other words, the suffering that God is promising here, that Jesus is foretelling, is happening so that his kingdom will expand. This was certainly the case with Paul. If you look through Acts, Paul has opportunity after opportunity to testify before the Roman governors and before the kings. And in his testimony, people are hearing the gospel and coming to know Christ. But the same thing is happening all over the world now. I I wonder when a Christian in Iraq or Iran or North Korea or Syria reads this passage, how immediately practical it must seem. You will be dragged before councils, you will be beaten, but you will bear witness to my name so that the gospel will be preached to all nations. This is a promise, a promise of the gospel, and it's a promise that the Spirit will be with them in the process. You see verse 11, don't be anxious about all this. Don't be anxious as if it's all up to you, so you better have the perfect defense ready when you get dragged before the council. It's a promise that the Holy Spirit will give you what to speak because the Holy Spirit is at work in this process. The Spirit is building God's kingdom. You know, it seems at times that we as Christians, particularly in America, sometimes see things getting worse or the secularization of of our culture as an obstacle to the gospel. Jesus seems to be saying that persecution is the opportunity for the gospel. And isn't this what we see all around the world? This certainly seems to be true in China, where the church was driven underground by persecution and arose 40 years later, millions and millions strong, boggling the minds of people. How could the church have grown this much under persecution? And we hear individual stories trickling out of the Middle East that say the same thing. I read this astounding story just a couple of weeks ago. It was a report given in January about a a recruit, an ISIS recruit in a Middle Eastern country. Some of the specifics of the story were withheld for security reasons. But at ISIS recruit, his job, one of the things he did was he contacted organizations that were active in the Middle East, and these organizations that were there to proclaim the gospel, he would contact them and request a meeting, supposedly to hear the gospel, in order to kill the Christians who were working for these organizations. And so this ISIS recruiter called a Christian organization called Leading the Way. And he talked to a man named Peter. And he talked to this man and he said, Hey, I would like to meet you in order to hear the gospel. Now, of course, Leading the Way knows perfectly well the threat that ISIS poses. And so their staff members are trained to vet phone callers before agreeing to meet with them. But this man, Peter, says that he felt during this phone call a strange and strong urging by the Holy Spirit that he must meet with this man. And so he skipped the vetting process. Of course, this ISIS killer did intend to kill him. But when they met, this ISIS man first asked Peter to share the gospel with him. And he did. And this ISIS recruit heard the gospel and was moved and said, I cannot kill him. And he said, Peter, can you meet me again? And between meetings, he had a dream and met Jesus in his dream and as his second meeting with Peter, committed his life to Christ. And he said to him, he said, you have to know that I intended to kill you on our first meeting. But God has met me and I now know Jesus is Lord. Here is the Holy Spirit preparing a man for what to say so that when you're facing opposition and persecution, the witness of the gospel goes forth and the kingdom of Jesus grows This is the heart of Jesus' point. One of the signs of the times, one of the signs marking the history as it progresses towards Jesus' return is that the gospel will be preached in the face of persecution. The Holy Spirit will use these opportunities to bring people to Christ and God's name will be glorified and God's kingdom will be growing all the more so in these situations. That is a sign marking this time and marking that the kingdom of God is coming. At the end of the ages and the return of Jesus is on its way because Jesus' words are being fulfilled and his kingdom is growing. Well, finally and fourthly, look at verse 13. Jesus' last words urging his disciples in the face of suffering and persecution, in the face of all people hating them, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I want you to step back from this passage and realize what Jesus is doing. Jesus' primary goal in this passage is not to give the disciples some sort of fill-in-the-date chart that you just sort of check off these times, match the date, and you'll know when he's coming back. He's not giving them a puzzle to solve or put together. Jesus is speaking to them pastorally, as their Savior, as their Shepherd, He's speaking to them in order to prepare for them for what is coming, for what they're going to experience. And he's speaking them to call them to faith, to call them to obedience in a time of distress. And so he gives them these words of encouragement and guidance all throughout this passage. Do not be deceived. Do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious. Be on your guard, for the one who endures to the end will be saved. I wonder if we would walk away tonight from this passage with those words ringing in our ears. Do not be alarmed. Do not be deceived. Do not be anxious. Be on guard. For the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is ending here with a promise. He's ending with a promise. He calls us to guard our hearts. He calls us to trust in a God who is sovereign over history. He calls us to actively prepare for this, this bearing witness. But if we do, the promise is this. If we endure to the end, we will be saved. And this, this word "saved" salvation, I, it's, we use it all the time. Maybe we're, maybe we're dull to what it means. We hear it. If we endure to the end, we will be saved. Salvation in the kingdom of God forever is the promise for those who endure to the end. It's the promise that's echoed all throughout Scripture. Maybe maybe Revelation 2, 11, and, uh, 11 comes to mind, and, and Revelation 3, 11, where where Jesus, speaking to John, says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I am coming soon, so hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Or maybe you think of Hebrews 10, 35-39, where where the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has such a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This call to endurance, this picture of this great promise, this great hope of a crown of life. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So do not be anxious. do not be alarmed. do not be deceived. be on guard. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I don't know what Peter Andrew, James and John were thinking. maybe they were still dismayed at the thought of the glorious temple of God being thrown into ruins. Maybe they didn't know what they were going to get from Jesus, what Jesus was going to say. But what they got from Jesus was solid hope. What they got from Jesus was a promise that God is sovereign over history. He is moving history towards an appointed end. And that appointed end is glorious because it is the return of his kingdom. And to everyone who endures to the end, it is a promise that they will be saved. And so, as they hear in these verses, in the verses to come, endurance is quite worth the wait. Because for the one who endures, they will see the Son of Man descending from the clouds in great power and great glory and be part of his kingdom forever. It's a great hope, isn't it? A great promise. It's so, a doer it to the end. We might be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage, this, this great hope that we have in Christ. We pray that as we see the things happening around us, these things in history which match exactly what Jesus said we ought to anticipate, that we would be encouraged. This is the birth process and the kingdom of God awaits at the other end. We don't know when, but we know that it will come. I pray that we would not be alarmed, that we would not be deceived, that we would not be anxious, that we would be on guard and that we would endure to the end, that we might receive the great hope of salvation from Christ our Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen.